0: It is uh, May 15th, 2016. I'm kind of excited today. I believe that I have a word of God for you. So if you're here today, let's be very clear. I am preaching to you, not your neighbor who's not in the building, not some televangelist that forgot the word of God a long time ago. I am speaking to you. And our message today is called A Chorus of Roosters. So let's turn to Romans 4 and begin there. Say there when you get there. Amen. Amen. Two of you are there, three of you. Come on, church. Where are you at this morning? Y'all not going to go to sleep on me, are you? Socola, can I count on you? Amen. Come on, Chris. Can I count on you? Come on, give me a, a yeah. yeah. Oh, there we go. So here comes Romans 4, 18 through 25. This is the very first time that I ever understood what faith was. I know it's not the traditional definition, but I'm not the traditional guy. It says, Against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Somebody say, he faced the fact. Yes. He faced the what? Fact. All of this talk about just don't receive it. All of this talk about naming and claiming. Understand that the body's, The Bible says it was a fact that his body was as good as dead. Faith is not a denial of the facts. It is the belief that the facts do not determine the outcome. Your God is above them. The fact is that we are often weak. The fact is that we are limited. But there is a fact that is above all of those other facts that our king is not. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Got a long ways to go, Mr. Fred. And that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. But was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. What was he in his faith? When you have heard from God, the facts do not alter your trust. The facts can line up again. The fact is the Red Sea is in front of you. The fact is Pharaoh is behind you. But there is a fact that supersedes every other fact. God said he would deal with it. Being fully persuaded. How persuaded? How persuaded? Church, y'all got to get with me this morning. We're small enough, I can make it to everyone in the room. So Thaddeus, how persuaded? How persuaded? Fully. Before we leave here today, we're going to be fully persuaded where the Lord is with us and us with the Lord. You know what we're not going to do? Church as usual. I I could, could go speak under a tree in Africa and be just fine. I don't need to do this. I do this because the living God has called me to it. So you know what? We will not just ease through a service sitting on our blessed assurance. It's not going to happen. So are you ready this morning? Okay, then we're going to be fully persuaded. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Romans ends up being one of those books that... Most theology comes out of. It is a theological masterpiece. And yet, if your theology doesn't show up practically in your life, then it is altogether practically worthless. What does it mean to be fully persuaded and have that do something for you? It means that in the face of overwhelming factual opposition, we don't just look and act like it's not true. We don't ignore it and hope it goes away. We don't stick our head in the sand and hide from the battle. We face the Red Sea knowing that it is there, knowing that it's real, knowing that it has the power to drown, knowing all of those things, and say, my God is big enough and I will go through it anyway. Christianity is not making the world as you would like it to be. It's dealing with the world as it is, right in your face, right in front of you, and saying, nevertheless, I have a kingdom that's not of this world, and it's my job to establish it here and now. When we're talking about this kind of trust-grounded obedience, a trust that looks in the face of fact and declares a promise, it's important to know that the Bible is just replete with promises. Let's look at a list of seven. What I'm going to put on the screen are seven women that the Bible begins with that are barren. Sarah was barren. That's this passage that we're reading about. Now, when we say barren, it's not that they're not trying. It's that they're not succeeding. How many times in faith is it that you're not... You didn't fail to try. You're simply not winning. How could there not be an amen for that? Uh, I mean... Are we liars in the house of God this morning? Or are we asleep? Oh, then, then all of you are winning? Oh, I mean, you, you, every, there was no phone calls to the pastor this week about atrocious sin. There was nobody who stopped me in a parking lot and said, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah, you do. That, that didn't happen here. Of course it did happen here. It's not that they were not trying. They just weren't succeeding. Well, how, pray tell, do we end up with the nation of Israel then? Because somewhere in that trust-grounded obedience, trying and falling on your face, trying and falling on your face, trying and falling on your face, God said, I account to you righteousness because I see that you trust me enough to try, and a baby comes. Barren means that you do not have the ability to do it. And yet, God did it. How about Rebecca? Rebecca also, her name means irresistible, but she also was childless until God gave her a child. And Rachel, and Manoah's wife, Samson's mother, doesn't even get named in the scripture. And four times, in two verses, she's called sterile, childless. I mean, so you are sterile, you were childless. Thank you very much. You are sterile, you were childless. I mean, we couldn't say it anymore until the day she gave birth to the Deliverer. You know, in fact, with seven women here, Hannah, we know, got her children. Elizabeth, we know, got John the Baptist. What is the only one that did not get a child? The only woman said to be barren in the Bible that did not get what she was after? Michael. Michael because she despised the faith-filled moving of King David. David thought that because God brought him to a position of king, it justified faith-filled actions. He was dancing in his underwear. Somebody said, "Yay, yeah, was. <laughs> Michael thought that her position alone was enough, and she despised what was happening there, and God gave her no children for the rest of her life. From this you might derive the idea that no matter how barren, no matter how hopeless your situation is, if you act faithfully, no matter how many times you fail, God's promise will stand. The one thing that God will not stand for is despising, trust-grounded obedience. That's the one thing. How about this list of seven? We got seven guys in the Bible that are the bypass of the firstborn. Cain was the firstborn, but Seth ends up in his place. Now, when you think about that, the firstborn got double honors. The firstborn got the right of inheritance. The firstborn came with a whole laundry list of good things. What can you do to make yourself firstborn? Anybody have a hand in that? You know, I didn't get to choose the order of my birth. I didn't even get to choose the order of my children's birth. It's something that only God can determine and what man could change it. The fact are you're not firstborn. But the fact is God can cause you to be in the firstborn position. So Cain forfeits his position. Seth gets it. We see the same with Japheth listed first in the genealogies until Shem supplants him. Then we see it With Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah over Reuben, Moses over Aaron, David passed every one of his brothers. Do you find it interesting that there's seven barren women and there are seven bypasses of the firstborn? It's almost as if God's got his story down perfectly. He said, well, this is my position. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, you're right. There may be nothing you can do about it except faithfully trust the Lord and know that He can do everything with it. The reason I'm giving you a list of seven is to avoid having to read all seven of each of those passages that say the same thing. But listen, how many times would you have to hear the same story before it began to sink in and become part of your story? What has God told you will happen that you don't believe will happen? Listen, for some of you young ladies, every time you look in the mirror, you are faced with something that feels factually true to you, but God says is not true. When you look in the mirror, you see inadequacy, but God's Word says He has made you competent. The Word of God says fearfully and wonderfully made, but because Glamour magazine fills people with plastic and dead cow products, you don't feel that way. The Word of God faces the fact that we are different than everyone else and says, but my Creator says this, And He determines for us what is true and what we live our life by. Facts are that one plus one plus one is three. Except with God, it's one. Facts are five loaves, two fishes cannot fill 12 basketfuls of broken pieces. But with God, it can. Fact is, iron axe heads don't float unless God says they float. Facts are, your comment on the weather will not change the weather unless you are Elijah. God's got a whole other set of facts. And we would do well to learn what He says about us and let His Word determine our truth. We live in a day where people think truth is relative. It's simply a, a group of or collection of things that people have agreed upon. No, th- those are lies, friends. Facts are whatever God says is true about something. And because we don't know him, we don't know truth. This is what Pilate and Jesus were discussing in the last hours that Pilate spoke with Jesus. What is truth, he said. Jesus' response was people uh, who know me listen to my voice. How about this? Let's go to James 2. You're waking up yet? You have to. I will not settle for anything less this morning. I, I woke up early to bless you. And uh in the name of Jesus, I'm going to do it, whether you want it or not. If if we have to beat the gospel in you, then I'm just going to say I packed a lunch and we'll fight all day. But I'd whole lot rather you just want something that's good. Okay? Uh, do you want something good? Yeah. What, was Wednesday boring or something? No. no? We did all right Wednesday? Then do you have faith today God might speak to you twice in one week? All right, act like, what are you, Buddhist? Listen, we're we not going to just sit and soak. This is a a a community conversation. That's what's happening. And the Lord's going to speak to you, you're going to speak to each other, and then we're going to go speak to them. Okay, I'm through with dry, dead religion. If I'd wanted to stay in that church with the stained glass and the steeple, that's what I would have built. But this morning, we're an army of the living God, and we're going to get our marching orders. Amen? James 2. Starting in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Wouldn't it be great if the world lived this way? If you could see what people believed based on what they did? Now, let's not misunderstand something. You might get wet trying to walk on water many times. But the fact that you are getting out of the boat shows that you trust the Lord. Don't think that your successes alone display the glories of God. In fact, your persistence in spite of your failure might display more glory for the king than all of your successes. Because in your success, he shares the glory with you. Well, I keep trying and it's not working. Well, keep being faithful, brother. Put on your boots and do it again. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Are you picking up a a little bit of Jewish cynicism here? Maybe even sarcasm. It's almost as if he's mocking the idea that it's enough to simply believe there's one God. But you hear it from everybody on the street everywhere. They have a demonic kind of faith. The kind of faith that says, hey, there's one God and that's good enough. No, that's what the demons believe Is true. That won't do anything for you. When you begin to obey what that one God God says, in spite of your failure, you just keep trying to obey. You keep working at it. You keep loving Him enough to pick yourself up and keep going. He will credit you with righteousness. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. Say made complete. complete. It's one thing to say you believe something. It's another to act upon that belief. You know, George Michael sang a song when I was a kid called, You Gotta Have Faith. He must have been talking about something else because he got caught in a men's bathroom looking for something that is indecent. If you go to Target now, you don't even have to go to the men's bathroom. You could go to the other gender bathroom for whatever nefarious thing that you want. We live in sick times. And what people do will tell you what kind of tree they are. If a man tells you he's evolving on his position regarding something that God's Word says is fact, then he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It doesn't matter how big his church is. It doesn't matter how nice he is, how well he speaks, or if Oprah Winfrey thinks he's wonderful. We either stand on what the Bible says is fact, or everything's up for interpretation. And that will shift based on your sin. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. In the same way... Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is a passage that a lot of people don't like. They think it is in conflict with Romans 4. It's not in conflict with Romans 4 at all. Abraham didn't simply say, I believe that the Lord will give me an offspring. He didn't simply say, I believe that there is a country out there that's not my own. He didn't simply say, I believe it would be the right thing to do to sacrifice my son. How did you know that he believed all of those things? He acted acted accordingly. These passages are in perfect harmony. So we enter into an interesting thing for ourselves. Our job is to try. Our job is to trust. And we know ahead of time that more often than not we're going to fail because we're barren. So maybe trust is best displayed in the number of failures that you overcome to get to the promise. You know, it's an interesting thing. The Christian body thinks that we're often defeated simply because we're still having to try. You know, we, we have a polemic going in the body. Those who say, hey, we're just sinners, it's not even worth trying. Yeah, they get exactly what they say. They are just sinners, nothing more. Saying that you're a saved sinner is like saying you are a pure harlot. Or, well, I'll just leave it there. I bet you can get that. Then the other side of the Christian faith, the other polemic says, hey, we've received it all already. (laughs) And yet they still die. So somewhere in this battle, we have to acknowledge and face the fact that many times things are not going as we want. Many times our backs hurt. Many times our blood pressure is high. Many times the enemy is lined up all around us. But there has to be a promise in you that says, nevertheless, God, I won't shut up, let up, or back up. In the name of Jesus, I move because He has said move. My circumstances don't determine my reality. The Word of God does. How important is it then that we know the Word of God? It's pretty important. When you're thinking of faith and deeds, I won't run through the familiar scriptures with you. I won't tell you that Philippians 2, 12 says to continue to work out your salvation. See, something is still needed. I, I, won't, I won't belabor that point. I won't say that Romans six twelve tells you that you must count yourself dead to sin and that you must not let sin reign in your mortal body. I, I won't run through the basics of the faith in that way. We won't revisit Titus 2.11 that tells you the grace of God has appeared to all men and teaches us to say no to ungodliness. See, it's not enough to simply declare yourself a believer. It's not enough to simply say you believe. When you say that you believe, it better be accompanied by trying, by faith-filled, trust-grounded obedience. And so, well, I am trying, I'm just failing. Well, he'll credit you with success if you... Never stop trying. This is not a salvation that is based on works. It is a work because you are saved. It is I love him enough to do exactly what he said. And all attempts to bastardize this into something else have just created dead religion on two sides. But people who love the the they love the word of God and love our savior, they're always working. They're always doing because they believe that He speaks to us. Turn with me to Galatians 3. We're going to see a very Jewish thing and then hop into the Older Testament. Come on, Chris. Chris is there. Steve is there. Jennifer is there. Boy, didn't you enjoy worship today? I love that. When that Jennifer gets excited and gets to singing, it just does something in my soul. You're new here. That one's my wife. I love all the girls in the church, beautiful godly women, but that one is special to me beyond all others. You know her because she's got blonde hair, and the more I talk about her, her skin's turning red and red and red. Did you want to preach this morning, huh? No, you're good right there? Okay, I just want to make sure. Galatians 3, are you all there? You foolish Galatians, don't you love Paul? Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Somebody say one thing. One thing. I love that. Paul clearly says, I want to learn one thing from you. Are you ready? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? There's one thing. Are you so foolish? There's two. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to obtain the goal by human effort? Three. Have you suffered so much uh, for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Four. Does does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Five. It's a very Jewish thing to say that I have one question for you and then ask five. But he does it because all are supposed to point to one truth. Human effort is not where this is at. The power of the Spirit is the only thing that makes a barren woman give birth. The power of the Spirit is the only thing that makes a second-born get the rights of a firstborn. And yet, we cannot sit around and say, Well, if God wants it done, then He'll just do it Himself, because He acts in conjunction with you believing Him and doing what He says. So Jeremiah says that the captivity of Jerusalem, uh, captivity of Israel in Babylon, would be seventy years. But God raises up Daniel who reads Jeremiah, and then he prays, and it ends in the seventieth year. Amen. It can only be done by the power of the Spirit. But He anoints you, doing things. Are you beginning to understand why faith and deeds are necessary? Yes. Yes. Now. If He anoints our doing, why do we fail so often? Well, how else do you know if somebody trusts you? If everything that you did succeeded, where would the ground for trust be? Trust is precisely because your experience and the facts say you're a failure. But you trust Him who said that you are not a failure. You are a competent minister of the gospel. So you move forward trusting Him, knowing that you are powerless, except that He has filled you with His power. There's a beautiful tension between these two truths because some sit in this room and all you can think about is that you're not what you should be. Let me just go ahead and concede it to you. You never will be. And yet by the power of the Spirit, you will trust Him and He will remake you into what He says you already are. You know, we we run into this. Why, Why do I even try if I fail? And if grace abounds because I sin, why not sin? You know, this argument's been going on a very long time. Let me just put it to you bluntly. You know why you don't continue to sin? Because you love Him. That's why you don't continue to sin. And if you love Him enough to try to obey Him, He will credit you with what you don't have. People that call this adding to the cross or works based salvation. Look, I, I invite them to come live with me for a little while. You know, we're as full of problems as anybody could possibly be. We just don't let that determine our lives or our direction. You you ask the little boy in Africa that's being fed whether he would rather me sit at home until I wait until I'm perfected, or whether I should trust that the king will perfect me as I go. You ask the church in Romania, you know, would you rather the imperfect pastor who is here or the perfect pastor who has not yet arrived? You know, if it is you who is starving, do you want the perfect man to give you the next bite of food or the one who is there? See, I will not let the fact that I have all kinds of yucky things working against me in my life, I will not let that fact Keep me from following the Lord with all of my heart. Instead, I will count those things dead. I will refuse to let them reign in me, and I will move forward. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Look, the gospel has always been about two requirements. It always has. Turn with me to Leviticus 11. Say there when you were there. So you go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. If you've never been in a church that preached on the book of Leviticus, you are missing out. Leviticus' Hebrew name is Veikra. Not Viagra, Veikra. But I do want you to wake up. (laughs) Veikra means He called. That's what it means. He called. There is a holy God calling to you. And in Leviticus 11, starting in verse 4, He said some very interesting things. There are some that only chew the cud or only have a split hoof, but you must not eat them. The camel, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is ceremonially unclean for you. The coney, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof. It is unclean for you. The rabbit, though it chews the cud. Are you getting the idea? In fact, let me show you a chart of the animals that are clean to eat, at least the large ones. This addicts, antelope, bison, cow, deer, gazelle, goat, ibex, sheep, they all have a split hoof and they chew the cud. If you don't know what that is, I'm just going to pretend that it means they chew their food a little longer. It's actually a little more complex than that. It has to do with the fiber that is in their diet and the need to constantly process it, um, meditating on the goodness of its nutrition and chewing it. And... um. Let me ask you something. Which one of them could choose to be born with a split hoof or no split hoof? They either are or are not by God's grace. But then the second requirement actually means they have to do something if they want to live and prosper. They have to meditate on the nutrition that God has given them. They actually, a cow will exercise his jaw in a 24-hour time period 40,000 times. 40,000. I thought my kids talked a lot. They spent the first few years of their life praying they would speak, and then the next 18 or so praying that they would be quiet occasionally. The gospel to declare someone clean always had more than one criteria. Don't let anybody dumb this down for you. Say, well, we were just made for worship. I heard that a lot yesterday. What a lie that is. You were made for so much more than worship. I mean, if all we were made for is worship, then Jesus would have descended from the throne of God, sang a a solo, probably written by Don Potter, and, and the world would have come to salvation, and that would be it. But He didn't, because we were not made just for worship. That's a great bumper sticker, Maybe in the emergent church we could get away with that kind of stupidness. But the Bible doesn't teach we were only made for worship. The Bible actually teaches you were made for obedience. A kingdom that is coming upon you. And your next act of worship, your spiritual act of worship, is to submit every member of your body to Him. To sit here and say, well, I am positionally righteous. I have split hooves, see? Yeah, but you also have to chew the cud. You following me? It is not enough to simply say I've been credited with righteousness. You have to attempt righteousness. You are not actually credited with it if you are not attempting it. Let me show you that in another passage. Go with me to Psalm 119. Now, actually, let me show you one more animal real quick. Isn't he cute? Do you know what he has? He's got a split hoof. So I guess he's positionally righteous. He doesn't chew the cud though. See, to have a one part, to have faith and not have deeds, makes you a little better than a pig. But if you have faith and deeds, uh, deeds that spring from your faith, obedience that comes from your faith, then you're a clean animal in the Lord's sight. You're more than that. You're the crowning jewel of creation. Okay, go with me to Psalm 119. Are you thinking about bacon yet? In the morning, when I'm studying, they're cooking bacon in the church because we don't yet have a giant Jewish outreach, and I can't figure out why. Um, and so, every once in a while, a graphic will make it in that is questionable. Are you ready for uh, Psalm 119? Look at verse 166. I wait for your salvation, O Lord, and, say, and, Amen. I follow your commands. So, which is it? Do we just wait on salvation because we're barren and there's no chance that we could ever save ourselves? Well, yes, that's true. And I follow your commands. Salvation has always been twofold to sit here and say, hey, I'm saved, Pastor, because when I was eight, I said I was saved. Well, good for you. Um, do you follow his commands? So, well, I got my baptismal certificate. Well, it'll burn with you. The good side of this, though, is we're all waiting for salvation. We're all waiting for righteousness to appear. You know, Mike Vallant and Flora are in the same boat as J.J. and Natalie. We are waiting for the goodness of God, and most of the time we're failing, but we refuse to fail to try. Because we love him, we are going to move forward. This allows you to agree with your adversary quickly. He says you're a failure. You say that's right, but my king is not. Say uh, you're not doing it right. I know, but I'm repenting all of the time. I'm getting better and better at this. You know, you should just quit now. Yes, you should just quit now. Leave me alone, church. There, this is this is not an impossible dynamic. The truth is that we believe in something that we cannot quite wrap our arms around yet, but it's just as true, just as real for us as if it were standing in front of us. The fact is that the world is going to try to constantly convince you otherwise. In your own thoughts, you're going to feel otherwise all of the time. But we are faithfully waiting for the salvation of our body, soul, and spirit while we carry out His commands. That is not works-based salvation. That is because I am saved, I will carry out His commands. I believe the salvation will appear. Let me ask you, how many of you are saved? I'm saved, I'm saved. How many of your hairs quit turning gray? How many of you are no longer aging? How many of you haven't been sick this decade? So how saved are you? Well, you were declared to be saved when you began trusting Him and becoming obedient to Him. You're in the process of being saved right now while you work it out with fear and trembling. And on the day He redeems your body, your salvation will be complete. But it is a process. And all attempts to make the starting line and the finish line the same point, only cheapen the faith and make a joke out of true religion. In Isaiah, the first chapter, turn with me. That way we get a Law of Prophets writings. Isaiah, the first chapter. Chris made it there. Come on now. Where's where's the left side of the room? (laughs) Yeah, I'm one of those guys. I'm not going to let you alone this morning. Isaiah, the first chapter, starting in the 16th verse. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Boy, that's insensitive, isn't it? I sent this to a relative here recently, and they told me how wicked I was. You know, repentance is not a dirty word if you love the Lord. It's something that you learn to love. You see it as a gift from God that you're granted repentance. Repentance. You know who was grossly offended at the thought that they would have to repent? The Jewish leadership of the first century. That's why whores and tax collectors came to Jesus and the Pharisees rejected God's purpose for their life. They didn't like the idea that they weren't already right with God. Be very careful that you don't absolve yourself of the need to repent, that you don't sit in a congregation and declare yourself more righteous than your deeds say you are. So what happens then is you could read this and go, well, I have to stop sinning and I have to start doing right, but no matter how hard I try, I can never do it. Praise God, the 16th verse is is not the last verse, though. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Does he say that you will accomplish justice or does he say "Seek seek it? Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Does he say that you'll win or that you should just defend them? Do you, you, you see what I'm saying? Plead the, the case of the widow. Look at verse 18. It's, it's quoted all of the time. Of course, it doesn't start in 16. People who quote this all of the time don't start in verse 16. They get to the good part right away. That's kind of our instant gratification faith. Just shut up and get to the good part. Tell me about the grace. Tell me about it in such sloppy fashion that I feel absolved of the need to do anything. We read this morning an encouragement sent to Pastor Wade from a marketing firm that if we really want to grow this church, 29-minute messages, and I kid you not, don't require anything of the people. Is that what it said, or don't challenge them? Don't ask them to have a commitment. Don't ask them to have a commitment. Can I tell you I intend to break every one of their sevenfold advice this morning? Amen. I will not punish you with my own low expectations. I believe that you are the sons and daughters of God. I believe that you are meant to change the world. I believe that it begins with changing you and that what begins inside of you will spread to your families and spread to the nations. I believe that you are the very hope of mankind on the earth today. So I won't sit here and just entertain you and then push you out the door and hope you tip me along the way. I, I, some, some other clown can do that at, at so many places. But in here, we train soldiers for the kingdom. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat from the best of the land. Consider this. He tells them, stop doing what's wrong. Learn to do what's right. Encourage the widow. Help the oppressed. Even though you are pitifully sinful, I will make you righteous. This is not a different faith than a New Testament faith. When we come to Messiah, you still are walking around in the same body. You still very often have many of the same forces at work in you. It's just not the only one. Now He fills you with His Spirit. Now He declares the very center of your being righteous and He tells you, Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what's right. I will make you white as snow. In the next day, you dirty your snow. And in the next week, your wool needs to be wool lighted again. It is an ongoing process. And you never stop learning from Him. You never stop growing in Him. Now that you have a split hoof, you are declared in the clean animals, you chew the cud of His Word. Amen. I could demonstrate this throughout the Word. So I'm not going to turn to Genesis 15 and verse 6 and tell you Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We won't go to Psalm 32 and tell you blessed is he whose sins are covered. We won't go to Isaiah 53 and verse 6 and tell you the iniquity of us all was laid upon him. We won't seek to demonstrate throughout the word that salvation has always been the same because you know that stuff. Instead... Let me talk to you about what I really want to talk to you about this morning. Is that okay? Let's go to Colossians, the first chapter. Colossians chapter 1. Let's let's begin looking at uh, verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing good fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. By the way, how much of that would be completely irrelevant if all you had to do was walk to an altar, get your baptismal certificate, and declare yourself saved? Being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience... And joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has, what's that word? Listen to me on the back row, ladies. What are you? Qualified. Qualified. Jesus Christ has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. In spite of your failure, if you continue to trust Him, if you move when He says move, and you are trying with all of your heart to demonstrate trust, He qualifies you. Oh man, that has to be good news. It is. You know, the idea that perfection is too hard so we won't even aim for it is unbecoming of Christians. The idea that says that you have already achieved this perfection is unbecoming of a Christian because it makes you a liar. We are trapped somewhere between those two statements. We are not yet perfected, but it is our daily aim to be perfected, and He is crediting us with perfection as we strive after Him. When He sees you, He sees Christ. I'll show you that some more in a minute. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For He has. It has Present tense? It has future tense? For He has... What is that? Frank, what is that? It's past tense. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Because He has rescued you, He has placed you in a state of righteousness... But because you are righteous, you do what He says. And if you are not doing what He says, then you are not standing in the place that He... You you went back to the dominion of darkness. The gospel is twofold. It requires an animal to have a split hoof and to chew the cud. The gospel is twofold. It requires you to not only say that you possess faith, but demonstrate it in your life. We won't read passages like Acts twenty six twenty, that tell us that Paul taught Gentiles everywhere to turn to God and prove it by their deeds. We, we don't even have to say those this morning because you've been qualified. I want to talk to you about what it means to be qualified for a minute. Is that okay? Yes. We're going to have to go beyond just an intellectual acceptance that we're qualified And we're going to have to start to begin to to walk that out in a practical sense. Because many of you can hear the same scriptures over and over and over that say you've been rescued, say you've been qualified. The problem is you're looking at the facts that surround you as if they determine your future rather than looking at what God has says about you and obstinately staring into the face of the facts without weakening in your faith. In Leviticus 8, we see something that's beautiful. We're going to be in Leviticus for a little while, so I suggest everybody get to the 8th chapter. You may have figured out by now this will not be a 29-minute message. I don't care what the marketing gurus say. Jesus Christ called me, not some executive who is interested in making a buck off of the church. I want to give my life to the church, not fleece it. In Leviticus chapter 8... Pick up with me in verse 22. He then presented the other ram, the ram for the ordination of Aaron and his sons, laid their hands on its head. Moses slaughtered the ram and took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward. And put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. Then he sprinkled blood against the altar on all sides. That's a, that's a little gross, isn't it? I mean, I noticed that many of you put on lipstick this morning. I noticed that many of you put on blush this morning. There's a lot of eyeliner in the church this morning. We're definitely not Pentecostal anymore. But nobody walked in here with the blood of a bull on your right earlobe, your right thumb, and your right great toe. What a strange practice this is, huh? So, I don't know. Which one do you think is the strongest in here? Let's let's take Ibrahim. So... (laughs) Ibrahim, if you and me are going to arm wrestle, which hand do you want to use? Why? Ibrahim, you're discriminating against your left hand. Ibrahim, if you want to kick a soccer ball, then you've got to kick it further than I'm going to kick it. Which foot do you want to use? Really? Your left leg. Ibrahim, you're confused. You're right-handed and left leg. Evil straighten you out. How about you, Ray? Which which leg are you going to use to kick that soccer ball? Ray, which leg are you going to use? Right your right leg. Why is that, Ray? It's your strongest leg. Do you mean that in most human beings, the right side is the strongest side? Few of you are supernaturally gifted. You're left-handed people, creative like Pastor Wade. Yeah, that's right. Egyptians are on the wrong side of the globe. They. Now I know how they built that pyramid. They did it right-handed and left-footed. That's why that's what we were missing. It turns out that if you were going to be a priest of God, on the strong side, your hearing would have to be anointed in the atoning blood. The strength of the rest of your life would be that every word that you ever heard would be filtered through the blood. Do you really think that's different for Christians? You're going to hear all kinds of things. We're going to hear doom and gloom all of the time. You're going to hear some idiot off of 59 selling you a bill of goods every single week. Everything that you hear, though, will have to be filtered through the blood of Christ. And as soon as you lose that, then you might as well just be ministering in the mind of men. But if everything that you hear passes through the blood of Christ will that create a strength in your life? Of course. I would go so far as to say 99% of all of your problems are that you are listening to things that are not Christ. How would you determine that? Well, I can tell you what the young men do. I know what Sokola does. I know what Rob does. They carry around 3 by 5 index cards to remind them of what God says about every subject that the enemy usually lies to them about. In fact, it's kind of like a Mortal combat. Every time the enemy tells them a new lie, they go sit down and write a new truth to combat that lie. So that when they're sitting at a parking lot uh, waiting for a brother to show up for a Bible study and a lie hits their mind, they take it captive. They ball it up. They take their scriptural sword and they crush it right there. They are training themselves through constant use of the word to distinguish good from evil. That's what our young men do. Are there any ladies in here that benefit from some index card therapy? I would just go ahead and tell you that you probably need your Bible within arm's reach of you at all times. Because the enemy is within arm's reach of you at all times. You know, I don't have a single good thing to say about the devil. But he is busy. And you better learn to defend yourself. We are actually in a warfare. Every word that you hear is supposed to be filtered through the blood of Christ. Now let's take it a step further. For everybody in the room, from the older to the younger, what if you never did anything with the strength of your hands except what Christ had anointed you to do? What if you could literally say what that song says? Where you go, I'll go. What you say, I'll say. What you pray, I'll pray. We sing the song all of the time. And then 10 minutes after we walk out of church, we do whatever we want to do and we ask Him to bless it. We are actually anointed in our hands to do only that which He tells us to do. What would your life look like if you didn't have those moments where you did whatever you wanted to do? What if we actually believed that our faith had to be accompanied by the deed that Christ tells us to do. What about your big toe? Anybody want to lose theirs this morning? Why? Why do they call it the great toe? You know, my son took a utility knife to an ingrown toenail. Monumentally bad decision. He's, he, he's the toughest of all the Stevens, and so he wounded himself in a way that would hobble most people. You find out how important your big toe is the moment that it is seriously injured. But until then, you can take it for granted. Anybody got one I can really stomp on to demonstrate this? (laughs) What if you only went where he told you to go? What if every time you thought, maybe I'll go over there, you waited until he told you whether you should go over there or not? What would it look like if he had actual lordship in your life? You know, you know. I'm going to tell you what it would look like. The kingdom of God come to the earth. Now, that is the goal, period. It's not enough that they were born priests. That wasn't enough. Even if they had been born again and become priest, that wouldn't be enough. They had to be anointed with the blood in every area. Turn with me to Leviticus 14. Say there when you're there. Just a few chapters to the right. In Leviticus 14, what does your chapter title say? Man, that's gross. Anybody want to talk about leprosy this morning? Leprosy is so abhorrent to the modern person. That we still have actual leper colonies in the United States. If you go to Carville, Louisiana, there's a leper colony there. You can't even get there from here, Charlie. You gotta start somewhere else. I mean, you can GPS it, and it's like you have to fall off the edge of the earth to find one. You know why? We don't ever wanna be associated with infectious skin disease. It's that way in the ancient world, too. But you've heard a billion messages about that, so I won't leave you there. Look at what you get anointed with if you want to be healed of leprosy. It's Leviticus 14, 14. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed and on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot. You mean the leper gets the same anointing as the priest? How interesting is that? Look at verse 15. The priest shall then take, somebody say then take. Then "Then take some of the oil. Oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. You cannot be anointed with the Holy Spirit of God without first being anointed in the same area with the atoning work of Christ. Sometimes we're praying for more power in an area and what we need is more submission to the crucifixion of Christ in that area. Let's be honest, if you had more power in some areas, if you had a greater manifestation in some areas, it would just be greater sin because you're not all that submitted to Jesus in every area. The more submitted you are to Jesus in a given area, the more of His Spirit will manifest in your life in that area. Lord, anoint me to witness, anoint me to witness, anoint me to witness. You never open your mouth and let me know how that anointing for witness goes. It would just make you more guilty. How about we begin to witness and then we ask for His anointing? Yeah? Church, I would like us to not be condemned by what we're not doing, but also to not sit in what we're not doing as if nothing was required of us. I want you to know that more of your life will be necessarily characterized by failure. But in the end, he credits the man who never quits with total success. It's like knowing that you're going to step in the ring and lose 15 rounds but be declared a victor because you didn't give up. I mean, a little Italian figured that out and made more money off of that one concept than you could possibly imagine. And it's a Bible concept. It's why we like the stories about the underdogs. Look at verse 17. Verse 17. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of his right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot on top of the blood. Where does the oil go? It goes on top of the blood. You want more anointing in your hearing? Make sure it's submitted to the Lord. By the way, how do you win against the devil? You humble yourself, submit yourself then to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee. Before power comes, there has to be a submission. Otherwise, what would he be empowering? So ask yourself, are you completely submitted to the Lord in the areas of only thinking about what he tells you is true? Are you completely submitted to the Lord and only doing with your hands what he tells you to do? Are you submitted to the Lord in that you go wherever He tells you to go and you do not go where you choose to go? See, these are good standards for you to judge your life by. And if you're not doing so well with that, it's not the end of us. Why would the Lord choose to anoint exactly two groups of people in this way? A priest and a leper. Because he takes lepers and turns them into priests. It's what he does. There is not a human being on the planet that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we're told to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not a human being on the planet that could save themselves, but we're told to continue to work out our salvation. So what we find out is, no matter how leprous, no matter how much you have failed, The only thing that can keep you from succeeding now is by despising faith-grounded obedience. Every barren woman received their child except one. You following me? While we're thinking on that subject, put Mark 1, verse 40 on the screen. Then we're going to move towards a place that we can close. But don't you dare close your Bibles. You're about to get something... That if you grab hold of, it'll teach you about the character of God in a way that ought to encourage your soul. In Mark 1:40, a man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees. "If you're willing, you can make me clean." What was the question in the man's mind? Not whether he could change leprosy, but whether he was willing to. How many of you say the Lord can do anything? Everybody says that. Lost people say that. I hear it all of the time. Our real question is, is he willing? Look at the next verse. Filled with compassion. You know how Jesus looks at your leprosy? He looks at every failure that you attempted something in faith but are falling on your face with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing. First and foremost, something you need to know about my king. He's willing. He's willing to help you. He wants to help you. He will help you circumcise your ears so that you hear from Him. He will help you wash your hands so that they're clean in His sight. He will help direct your footsteps. He's already ordered them for you. All you have to do is learn to hear His voice and everything else falls into place. He is willing. None of you are condemned to whatever you're experiencing now. Some of you have failed. Some of you failed this week and it broke your heart. You think, you know... I can't remember a time when this one sin wasn't eating my lunch. And pastor, I hear you preach about power over sin all of the time. Well, somehow or another, it's just not manifesting in my life. Yeah, well, don't you give up until it does. We're not in the sin management business. We're in the sin destroying business. Our king will credit us with victory if we continue to fight. He is willing to help you. Is it, say that with me. He is, willing. he is willing. Are you willing? He is willing. We don't get past the first chapter of Mark and we find out He's willing. question's not, is He willing? It is, are you willing? Look, there is a deep history that the Bible is set within. That wall is a chart of biblical history. And when we're thinking about it, you know, the Bible has shaped much of it. But all around the Scripture story, things have been happening in history. Let's read Leviticus 18 together and then we're going to talk history for just a minute. Say there when you're there. In Leviticus, uh, I said 18, I meant 21. It's 21, 18. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or deformed. No man with a crippled foot or hand or is hunchbacked or is dwarfed or has any eye defect or who has any festering or running sores or a whole host of other problems. Yeah, let that sink in for a while. Somebody had to check. That standard's pretty high, isn't it? You know, there's always been this battle in the Scripture between a standard that most people, all people, no no one was righteous, not even one. Nobody was fit to serve the Lord. So we were waiting for someone who was fit who would credit us with His qualifications. He has qualified you. So in history, I don't want to run down the whole history of the world for you. and certainly don't want to recall Mel Brooks' moments. We start off with an Egyptian empire that is ruling the earth. you got to love that. Then we move to an Assyrian. And in Daniel's day, we pick up with a Babylonian. Uh, the Babylonians take Israel captive. They come out under the Medo-Persian Empire. A guy named Cyrus issues a decree to rebuild the temple. And Israel's Bible just keeps working and the faithful God keeps taking them from captivity back to restoration, same as you. And after the Medo-Persian Empire, a young Greek named Alexander comes to power. And Alexander uh, rules the world by about the age 30. And he's got four successors, the Diadochi. This is Cassander, Ptolemy, uh, Antigonus, uh, Seleucus. They divide up the whole world. You know, the Bible is still continuing during the reign of all of these men. Under Seleucus in the Seleucid Empire, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes uh, comes in and occupies the area of Israel. His name, It had been uh, Mithrides, and he changed it to Antiochus Epiphanes. My name is God manifest. He's a real humble guy, and um, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. And when he sacrificed a pig on the altar and he made most of the priesthood eat it, there was a rebellion in Israel. Uh, How many of you know who George Washington is? Yeah, Paul Revere, Um, Alexander Hamilton. These names are Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. If you don't know who Thomas Jefferson is Pass all your $20 bills forward And I'll show you <laughs> At least for a few more years They're going to put somebody else's face on it I hear We live in really changing times So Antiochus Epiphanes Then is ruling in the area This is in the uh, 167 AD This is the area that Jesus is going to be born into And The Hasmonean dynasty Raises up Have you ever heard the name Judas Maccabeus? Judas Maccabeus means uh, the praise of God, the hammer, right? Uh, When my son Judah went to elementary school here, in his first class uh, there was a Jewish boy named Angus who thought Judah was named for the Hasmonean prince, the Maccabean prince, Judah. And he admired him and thought he was uh, Jewish, right? It provided a very unique opportunity for witness. So... In Israel, what we have then is we have about a hundred years of self-rule where the Hasmonean princes are ruling everything. And, man, it felt good for Israel because they had been under the thumb of the Medo-Persians. They had been under the thumb of the Greeks. They had been under the thumb of the Babylonians. In North Israel, they had been under the thumb of Assyria. All of them had been under the thumb of Egypt. And it felt good just to be free, you know? If you go to Israel today and you look at a shekel, their coins have uh, art from the Hasmonean dynasty still on their coins, still on their money. Most of the things that are today present on buildings and stuff in some way call back to the period of independence. How many of you read uh, Shakespeare in school? Okay, the rest of you hopefully saw a a movie. Um, So when Julius Caesar is is killed... um, it had been preceded just before his death, about 20 years before his death. He and Pompey were just generals, and Pompey had conquered the area of Israel. And when he conquered the area of Israel, it uh, brought Romans in, into the area, and the last Hasmonean prince um, was reigning. And Pompey kind of fades out of the picture. He dies. Caesar uh, rises in, in power. He dies. And in Shakespeare, do you remember who's next? We move to a time period where we have Mark Antony. Some of you have seen the movie about Mark Antony and Cleopatra, right? Mark Antony goes into Israel, and he meets with the last Hasmonean prince, a guy who also happens to be Antigonus is his name, just like one of the generals. Antigonus is the last of the Hasmonean princes, so if you're an Israelite, this is the last man who ever had self-rule before Rome came and took you over. Would you remember him? Yes. This is about, the events I'm going to describe to you are about 40 years before Messiah. So my children didn't live through the Cuban Missile Crisis, but they've all heard about it. Um... In my house, none of them ever met JFK. Most of them haven't even listened to his speeches, but they're surely aware that the Cuban embargo against cigars has affected us to this day. In the world that Jesus grew up in, they would still be telling stories about the last of the Hasmonean princes. Okay, I want to show you a a slide. Is that okay? Uh, not a slide there, should be one about um, uh, Josephus of Antiquities. It is a JPEG in the folder. I'll read it while she looks for it. Okay. Uh, This is the last Hasmonean prince. He had been banished to Rome by Mark Antony. And uh, he's, oh, there we go. As uh, soon as he gets back to Israel, he cuts off uh, uh, his brother's ears and thereby took care that the high, high priesthood should never come to him anymore because he was maimed. While the law required that this dignity should belong to none uh, but such as had all their members in entirety. Let me, while we leave that on the board for a minute, let me paint this picture he is deposed by Mark Antony for a short time. He goes to Rome. While he's in Rome, he gets nervous about whether or not he'll be able to hang on to power. So when he comes back, he's got a brother. Some say it was his uncle, but a man named Hieracanus. And he could be the high priest and he could be the king. That, that, that's the threat because he's a legitimate heir. To make sure that he could not hold that office... The last Tasmanian prince cut the ears off of his brother or uncle, depending on how you read it. That's gross, huh? If that was the last story, that and by the way, a guy named Herod, Herod the Great, is installed by Mark Antony after this. Mark Antony kills uh, Antigonus and installs Herod, and Herod is in power during the uh, uh, early days of the gospel, and... After Mark Antony comes Octavian, who is Augustus Caesar. Jesus is born during his reign. Now, I say all of this for a very specific reason, though. The law required perfection. And the law is right. It's not wrong. It's correct. And there would always be men who would point to others' imperfection as a way to show that they had the right to rule and the others didn't. Could you turn with me in our gospel story to John, the 18th chapter? Y'all still awake? Some people love history, some don't. But I love the scripture and I study the history to the extent that it helps me understand the scripture. In John 18, look at verse 7. Again He asked them, Who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am He, Jesus answered. If you are looking for Me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words He had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave Me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, we've checked every commentary that we own this morning, and we found out that the universal opinion is that Peter was trying to cut the head off of Malchus. Gabe, I need an example. So, Gabe, come stand right here in the middle. We're going to take a good swing at you and see if we can get your head. Okay. So, where is your right ear, Gabe? Put your hand on your right ear. If Peter is a right-handed man, how does he get to that ear without hitting the shoulder? How does he get to that ear without cutting up the head? Do you think Peter was trying to kill him? No. No. Why does it mention it was his right ear that was cut off? Why is that important? Isn't it enough that... He attacked him? And then, why does it say that he's the high priest servant? Why is that a relevant detail? Because if Malchus standing here is the high priest servant, he has to have both ears or he cannot continue his job. Peter wasn't trying to kill him. There would have been no way to get to that ear in a mad dash like that. He probably grabbed him... And hacked off that ear as if to say, you are not qualified to be a priest. Is there anybody here that wants to root for Peter in that? Man, there's a part of me that just like, yeah, Peter. (laughs) Because, dude, I am an ear cutter. I can find something wrong with anybody. Just a terrible, sinful human being I am. But this is not where this story ends. You can sit down, Gabe. Look with me in Luke 22. Say there when there. In Luke 22, we have additional details. Starting in verse 49. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Apparently, they didn't wait to hear the answer. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed them. Do you mean to tell me it's in our nature to disqualify each other, but it's in the nature of the king to qualify you? See, he didn't come to condemn Malchus. Malchus. He came to rescue Malchus from the dominion of darkness. To bring him into the kingdom of light. And he intended to give his life for the benefit of every Malchus in the world. Including you. What disqualifies you this morning? That our king is not able to heal. There's only one thing that he can't heal. We learned it from Michael. He cannot heal the heart that is just too proud to trust him and act on that trust. Any other problem, even if it's leprosy, he will fix. And you have to believe that and move forward saying, I'm not there yet, but he's fixing me. I'm not there yet, but I'm going to begin to act like I am because I trust Him. I may still see and face the fact that I have all of these problems, but I will not be weakened in unbelief. I will be strengthened and will not waver. Otherwise, by the way, I asked how many of you, and I was kind of tricking you, supported Peter, and so many of us, yeah, yeah. How how about this little detail? Go back to John 18. Here's a shocking little tidbit. Peter who disqualified Malchus. Now we're in John 18. Pick up with me in verse 25. As Peter stood warming himself, he asked, you are not, I'm sorry, as Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of these disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, there was a chorus of roosters. See, if we get in the disqualifying business, what mom said as a kid... It's true, when you point your finger at someone else, you got four pointing back at you. None of us are qualified. Not one. No one is righteous. There are just those of us that have trusted Him for our righteousness, and we begin moving forward in faith. By the way, lest you think badly of Peter, put Acts 5.15 on the screen. Let's finish with that. If anybody thought maybe they should just give up, maybe Peter did, except he didn't. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. The truth is you will do a thousand things in your life that disqualify you. But our King is able to re-qualify you if you just don't give up. So then... We come down to this. He gives you the split hoof. You have been born again into a new species. Now the earthly dirt and the heavenly breath have made a new kind of human being. Pentecost has relit the altar of your heart. But on the days that you fail to chew on His word and you act more like a pig than an acceptable sacrifice, what do we do? We continue to trust Him. You have no other option. He that began the good work in you, He will bring it to completion. Listen to me. If you sit in the church of the living God condemned, you listened to part of the message but didn't get it all. The truth is He has unlimited power to put you in right standing with Him. The truth is all of us are completely barren except that as we trust Him, He will bring forward life from us. So then there is one difference between us and the world. It's that we trust Him enough to try to do what He says to do. That's, That's it. There is no other difference. You stand justified in Christ if you love Him enough To with all of your hearing, with all of the working of your hands, with all the traveling of your feet, you try to do what pleases Him. Can we say that's an easier thing to declare than actually do? Mm -hmm. But it's not too late to start right now in any area that you know you're falling short in. I'm going to suggest to you that the biggest one in the room is not feet. This is a missions church. The biggest one in the room is not hands. I mean, it might be a close second. The biggest one in the room is that you often entertain thoughts that Christ did not say. And it's because we don't know the Word like we should. We don't live in the Word like we should. And even in saying that, we can sit there and heap condemnation on ourselves because we don't. The goal of preaching and teaching, the goal of the Word is to repent and begin to. What would your life look like if you believed what the Word said about you? What would your life look like if you did not consider things that did not come from the Word of God? We're at our very last moment in this service, but I can tell you most of the men that we've admired through the centuries, Smith Wigglesworth wouldn't let you bring a newspaper into his home. When Lester Summerall was a small child, like 18, 19 years old, just beginning in the faith, I say child because he preached till he was 90, he was thrown out of Smith Wigglesworth's house. He said, I don't listen to lies in this house. We read the word of God only. They took a standard that says, I think what God tells me to think. If we could do that, you wouldn't dwell in condemnation. You also would not dwell in pity. You wouldn't have any self-esteem problems of any kind because you would no longer have the right to think what you wanted to think. You would only believe what the Word said. So let's start with be joyful always. Pray continually, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Oh, we know it says it. Is that one optional for you? How about let your light shine before men? Is that one optional for you? How committed to the Lord are you really? Do you stand here with split hooves, but you failed to chew the cud? Could we stand to our feet?